0: Yeah, part of the reason I'm so mellow is um, my Achilles heel is my vocal cords. And as much as I would love to sometimes get riled up, if I do that, then there will be no next session. And um, it's just the Lord has me has me on on lockdown that way. So I'm naturally, I've become more mellow with age. I used to be, you know, like when you get a little black lab puppy. And they're all kind of spastic. Like I was much more that way in my youth, and then the lab gets hit by a car once or twice. And they become a really good dog after that. <laughs> they're just a little bit a little bit broken and more mellow. It happens to the best of us. So I want to take a deep dive this morning. Um, how many is this is their first session that they've been here? So there's a handful. Just a handful. So last night, we laid out what I call an introduction to the Islamic end time paradigm. You could just say the Islamic end time theory, which summarized is the notion that the Antichrist, his empire, and his religion would come out of the Middle East and very well, maybe Islamic or Islam in terms of his religion, and the empire itself being Islamic in nature, that it would be a Middle Eastern, North African, i.e., the biblical world. Uh, That is from where it would come, as opposed to Europe, as opposed to this revived Roman Empire, that if you read the vast majority of end-time commentary over the past hundred years, but in in a lot of ways down through history, although that's not entirely fair, um, this has been the predominant perspective that the Antichrist would come out of the Roman Empire. Now, for clarity, in the early church, they believed the Antichrist was going to come out of the Roman Empire. Of course, they lived under the shadow and under the oppression, under the hegemony of the Roman Empire. So it was very natural for them just to assume that this great pagan empire is from where the Antichrist would come. Um, And it was a pagan empire until the 4th century, Constantine, etc., converts to Christianity, and then the empire is semi-Christianized, if you will. But long before that, the empire had significantly deteriorated. And so even by the 4th century, you have some of the early church writers and commentators, uh, this one fellow, Andrew of Caesarea, who says, you know, the Roman Empire is sort of decayed. It doesn't have nearly the amount of power it used to. And he said, I think the Antichrist is going to come from something else. You know, so this, this idea used to be that it would come out of this pagan empire, but then the empire becomes Christian. And so the church abandoned the idea that this was the embodiment of the Antichrist. And actually they started looking, uh, the next major uh, references that you have to this is after Islam arose, they started looking at the Islamic uh, empire. But then in the 1500s, well, during the Reformation period, you had sort of, you know, the Catholics and the Protestants at each other's throats, and Martin Luther and the various reformers are pointing at the Catholics saying, no, you're the Antichrist, you're the great whore. And so the church sort of returned to this Roman-centric perspective, but it was no longer pagan Rome. Now it was an inter, if we can use this, an inter um it was a sectarian conflict, an inter-Christendom conflict, and this has dominated Protestant, the Protestant mind for the past 500 years. Now listen, I'm a Protestant. I hold to the tenets of the Reformation. Uh, I was raised nominally Catholic. Um, I'm not a Catholic basher. I'm not anti-Catholic. I see tremendous value in the historical uh, church, but I am a Protestant. But it's a significant difference on one hand to say, as a Christian, I disagree with you on these various points, and some of these are critical points. I disagree with issues such as authority and you know, a lot of different matters, You know the overemphasis on Marian intercession and sort of all of this stuff. But that's one thing, to have a conversation, to have a discussion, to have a dialogue. And it's another thing entirely to say, you are the great whore. You're the embodiment of Satan in the earth, right? Like, that sort of cuts off conversation. <laughs> and yet, that's where much of the church is today. Now, you go, but what about Islam? If you're saying it's Islam, aren't you, likewise, um, aren't you a hate preacher? And there's some, that's a valid question, but the point is, let me go back to the c- Catholicism, Catholicism affirms all of the essential historic doctrines of the Christian faith in terms of the divine incarnation of God in Christ, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, the divinity of the Messiah. I mean, these essential historic doctrines of the Christian faith. When you get to Islam, the Islamic religion, the book itself, the Quran, their holy book, so to speak, it actually names. Each one of those doctrines, it refers to the issue of Jesus dying on the cross. And it goes, no, they never killed Jesus. That never happened. They only think that. They're deceived. They're following conjecture. They have no history to go by. It talks about the fact that we say that the Messiah, Jesus, is the Son of God. And what do we mean by Son of God? Do we mean that God actually had sexual relations with Mary? No. No Christians have ever believed that. But that's the misunderstanding of the Quran. And it goes, the Christians, they call the Messiah, the Son of God. In this, they imitate the pagans, the unbelievers of old, Allah's curse, God's curse beyond them. It actually, the Quran itself, curses us for affirming... The, his, the most essential foundational doctrines of the historical Christian faith, the most essential, sacred, important things at the heart of who we are and what we believe. It says if you believe those things, God's curse is on you. You're a blasphemer. You're a pagan. So I would say that the Koran, um, you know, to use Rambo terms, drew first blood. <laughs> you, I can't do a... Can't do a Rambo impression you do first blood, but the point is the Quran goes after us first So it is not hatred to expose hatred But this is what the world will say if you criticize Islam you're promoting hatred no if you're exposing Intolerance and hatred that's not hatred you're just saying that's hatred and that's wrong And I continue to affirm what I stand for and if it calls me a blasphemer. I'm going to have to object That's not hate. And second, it's so critical, and this is why this message is so dangerous, and it needs to be qualified. We're not bashing Muslims. We are critiquing an ideology. In the same way that I could stand up here and criticize and critique Nazism as evil, you can criticize any ideology and say this belief system at its foundation is it promotes a doctrine of violence, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and, you know, this is not the point, is to criticize Islam, but that is very different than promoting hatred of individuals because as Christians, our book is very consistently clear. Our God is clear in, that he expects us to love not just our friends, but also our enemies, whether it's theological or political, et etc., 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 and so, it needs to be so emphasized, and we're going to talk about this a bit more in the next session. Um, the, the absolute, it is, it is a, you know, un, um, what's the term I'm looking for? I mean, it's a deal breaker. That there is, there's no if ands, or buts about it. We are called to love Muslims in the same way that God loved us. So, we'll talk about that some more. But, so, with that said after having suggested and laid out a biblical framework for the idea that the Antichrist, his empire, and his religion would come out of the Middle East, I want to dive a bit deeper. We're going to jump into Daniel chapter 8. This is going to be a pretty heavy... You're going to have to try to stay, um, pay attention because we're, we're doing a real heavy Bible study that could take two hours. We're going to try to consolidate it in about 45 Let me say this, the book of Daniel is, I believe, one of the most significant manuals for the end-time church. I mean, it is the manual of the end-time church in terms of a book that will impart understanding. You have a few different chapters in, in the book of Daniel, particularly Daniel chapter 8 and 11, chapters 8 and 11, that are so filled with detailed prophecy, so specific that many scholars looked at this and they said there's no way that this could have been written before the fact, and they concluded that the book of Daniel must have been written by a Daniel pretender, a pseudo-Daniel, not by Daniel himself, and that it was written about 300 years after it was purported to be written than what traditional Christians believe. So rather than having been written by Daniel in Babylon in the 6th century, so this is the 500s sort of in that period, rather they say it was written about 200 years before Jesus by someone pretending to be Daniel. Because they go, this is what's called prophecy written after the fact. Because it's so specific. Now, on the other hand, if it is true prophecy, which we believe it is, Jesus affirmed the book of Daniel. In the fact that it was Daniel, he goes, as it was written by the prophet Daniel. He didn't go, as it was written by this fake pretender, Daniel, right? Jesus is not affirming a fraudulent book. And not to mention, there's all all sorts of scholarship that validates the fact that it is indeed written by Daniel. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, this is the time period that all of these... German critical scholars for you know, hundreds of years, 100 years had already been saying Daniel was written during the period of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's, um, I want to say, three different copies of Daniel that are part of that. And it's treated just like it's canonical. So if it had been a pseudo-Daniel, it would not have been received as scripture in that brief period of time. It had already been equal on par with Isaiah and Jeremiah, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that's impossible. So it completely put a just stake in the heart of this idea, but they still won't give it up. Why? Why is Satan so determined to go after the book of Daniel? Because no other book in the Bible has been more attacked by German critical, well not just German critical, but it started with German critical... Higher scholarship and now just I mean, even a lot of conservative seminaries will actually teach this, believe it or not, that it was not really written by Dan, but it's okay, it's still scripture. You go, what are you talking about? No, it's not. Either it's a fraud or it's the word of God. There's no, like it can't be both. And um, it has been the single most attacked book in all of the Bible. Why? Because I'm convinced that it is an absolutely critical manual for the end times church. It is one of the most critical keys that will give us understanding of the last days. Daniel 8 is one such chapter. So I want to just jump right in. Daniel 8, verse 1 through 2. So this follows Daniel 7, obviously, which is the chapter where Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And these beasts represent four pagan empires. We're not going to get into all of that. But so in verse 1 it says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king... A vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So it follows the vision of the beasts. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I was beside the Ulai Canal. So Susa is a city that, in fact, go to the next slide. Susa is a city that was in Elam, which was in the southwestern province of Persia and it was just to the east of Babylon so here's a map of modern nations Babylon was about 50 miles south of Baghdad so kind of right there in the queue of the Iraq and about 200 miles or so to the east is Shushan or Susa today it's called Shushan or um, actually today it's uh, pronounced Shush it's still there Um, So he was in Susa. This is where Daniel saw himself in the vision. Scholars debate, was he really there was in a vision? It was probably a vision. And so he's about 200 miles east of where he was physically in in Babylon. Verses 3 through 4. And so this is what he sees. He says, behold a ram. So a ram with two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now, the two horns were long. These are long horns, but one's longer than the other. And the longer one came up. It grew up last. So it comes up second, and then it's much bigger. I saw the ram budding. The ram is budding. So he's he's budding out. He's pushing out westward, northward, and southward. And no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased. And he magnified himself. Whenever I read this, this passage, I always think of... I stopped watching um, fights about six years ago when I had my son. I'm, I used to love watching MMA fights, and then I had my son. I said, I can't... Because if I watch it, he's going to watch it, and then he's going to start using the moves against me. <laughs> and um, actually against his sisters is what I was more concerned with. And, and then he'll get in trouble in school, and he's, uh, my son's adopted, and... Um, Unlike myself, his birth father was biological father was like six four, six five. <laughs> so he's gonna be a big boy. He's already a big boy, and um, and I just don't want him to be the big boy that beats up all the other kids in class. Plus I was convicted, you know, the the verse that says the Lord hates violence. I was like ah but so anyway <laughs> but I really want to see the fight tonight. Um, <laughs> but um because I want to see the arrogant get... But this is really, this, they're both arrogant, so anyway. Everybody always wants to see the, bra- the bragger get, get um, humbled. But it's like that, in that you have a fighter comes up, and you're like, man, this guy's unstoppable. No one can beat him, until someone beats him. And then you're like, man, that guy's unstoppable. You know, like everybody eventually turns 40. <laughs> and a no- young guy comes up and just... And so it starts out, you've got this ram. He's butting out. None can rescue from his power. He did as he pleased. He magnified himself. I can't possibly be beat, you know. Daniel uh, 8, 5 through 6. Then here comes the challenger. While I was observing, behold, a male goat or a shaggy goat or a buck of the goats is coming from the west. So now we begin over here in Persia, Susa. That's where the goat is. Then in the west, comes over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. I always say, it's a super goat. You know, it's... it's um, da, 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 da. So I just say that just to embed that picture into your brain. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, so it's a unicorn goat. Okay, It's a super unicorn goat. He's coming from the west. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal. It rushed at him in mighty wrath. Verse 7, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground, and he trampled on him, and there was none to rescue from his power. So this is the new undisputed, heavyweight, light heavyweight champion um, of the Middle East is the, the he-goat. So here's a map of the Greek empire. We looked at this last night. Now, virtually every commentate, commentary that you read on this, and I always have to highlight the fact I'm a commentary geek, and um, I've, of all the commentaries I have, I've got probably now a little bit over 150 Hundred and sixty commentaries on Daniel. Of course, they're all in boxes right now, because um, I recently moved. And um, But they're like, you know, when everyone else goes to bed, I go down and I, I kind of just touch my commentaries and I'm like, my precious. <laughs> you know, my babies. I just, I love my, my commentaries. And um, I love surveying the, the history of Christian and Jewish interpretation of this. And I go, what did we believe? What did the church believe in the early days? And what do they believe now? How did we get to where we are? And, you know, working through the broad consensus of, of what has the Holy Spirit spoken to his people down through history? How did we arrive where we are today? Well, virtually every commentary will say that what these two beasts represent is the ram with two horns represented the historical Medo-Persian Empire. This is the one that defeated the Babylonian Empire, the one that came after Nebuchadnezzar's empire, and swept out of the area of Persia, out of the area of Elam, all the way across the Middle East, right through Turkey, up into Europe. A lot of people don't realize it, but the, the reason Iran today is called Iran, it's from the word Aryan. Like the Aryan race, because and it was actually because of the connection with um, uh, Germany and so forth. But the original peoples of Iran were Indo-European, and so many Europeans today actually are from the area of Persia as they pushed up into Europe. I mean, the, I always find it fascinating the the moving of wars and you know how peoples end up. And there's a lot of like because. Iranians, Persians are always quick to say, we're not Arab. A lot of Americans just think, well, all Middle Eastern, you know, they're all kind of like dark, look like Joel. Um, but there's a lot of people like even in the north of Iran, they're blonde, light skin, same thing in Syria. And um, so it's interesting that there's uh, ethnically speaking, the Medes and the Persians, very different peoples than much of the, the Arabs, which is a also a mixture of different peoples throughout the Middle East. But this is then after the Medo-Persian Empire swept across the Middle East, then Alexander came, and this is what everyone says is the goat with the prominent horn. And the horn represents the leader, the, the beast, the animal represents the empire, but the horn represents the leaders. So they go, the prominent horn was Alexander the Great. So they go, this is, in essence, the empire, the goat. None could withstand his power. Verse eight, but then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken off. You can see why they say it was Alexander the Great, because it lines up with history. And Alexander died as soon as he conquered that whole Middle East. He he died at a very young age; um, when he was thirty-two. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place up came four conspicuous horns. So four horns come out, and I found a picture of a. I, Apparently, there's a breed of goats that actually have four horns. I've always thought it'd be great to, um, you know, when you know, down in Tag, you know, you get an elk or a deer or whatever, and you put it on the shed, right, the skull with the horns. I always thought it'd be great to get a goat with four horns, and like just put on your garage to completely freak the neighbors out, because it, it just looks so like satanic, you know, they just be like. But it's a breed with four horns. Then verse 9, out of one of them came forth... I could tell you a horrible story. Um, I, was, I, was at, I had moved into this house, uh, a couple houses back, and I went for a walk. I used to always do a lot of prayer walks at night. And I'm walking around, and I stumble upon a big old dead buck, deer. And someone had shot it with a, you know, and got it right in the eye. And so it obviously had ran off and died. But it was still kind of fresh, and I was like... And it was a big old rack, so I... Um, I was like, well, I'm gonna, you know, come back tomorrow night, and so I, I brought back my hacksaw, and um, went a little Allahu Akbar on him. and uh, so I cut the the deer head off, and then I'm walking down my street, the new neighbor, and the <laughs> the the neighbors come driving by, and like someone like just stop, like they didn't stop and saying they just kind of stopped for a second, and then kept going. I'm just carrying this big deer head down the street and a saw, and I was just like. Um, <laughs> So then I uh, just left it in the chicken coop and let the chickens pick at it for a while. And I thought they would just like, because chickens all eat each other. You know, they get a little spot. They're like, you know, they start eating it. And, and they didn't. Like, they just looked at it. Like, they just kind of walked around it. And they were just like, oh. Like, that. Like, I was like, clean it. Do what you're supposed to do. They were just, they were freaked out. <clears throat> So after Alexander, his horn is broken off, four come up, and then it says, out of one of them, so out of one of these quadrants, out of one of these horns, if you will, out of one of them, verse 9, came forth what begins as a small horn, which grew exceedingly great, and it specifies, it grows toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Now what every commentary, just about every commentary will say, is that this was Antiochus Epiphanes so after Alexander died the commentaries say it was his four generals they say it was Ptolemy Seleucus Cassander and Lysimachus. his four generals that took over his his empire and broke it up and then eventually out of the Seleucid or Seleucid dynasty the eighth king of that was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes and the book of Maccabees, which are in the Catholic Bibles, which this took place during the intertestamental period, they record the events when Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem and the abominations that he carried out, and he made Judaism illegal. He killed over 40,000 Jerusalemites, he exiled another 40, I'm not sure it was 40 or 60,000 and, um, and just the things that he did were horrible. If he found out that people had secretly been circumcised, in other words, they were secretly keeping Torah, he would you know, do things like fry children on these big griddles in front of their parents and throw babies off walls. And I mean, he was just a brutal, brutal guy. And again, you can read about that in Maccabees, but virtually everyone says this is what the prophecy was speaking about. And then in verse 10 through 12, we have a very unusual couple of verses. And it says this of this little horn. It grew up to the host of heaven. It grew up to, the, you know, to those in heaven. And it caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. And it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal to the commander of the host. This is God. God the commander of the host of heaven. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host, these are the the heavenly host, or the leaders, um, will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. It will fling truth to the ground, perform its will, and prosper. People often ask me, they say, Joel, um, do you believe in the prosperity gospel? I'm like, well, it's right there in Daniel 8, verse 12. It says the little horn will perform its will and prosper. Just kidding. So, and I won't get into that. But um, the problem is there are problems here with these verses applying to Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to talk about that some more. So here's a chart. Let's see if that transferred. Go to the next slide. Yep. Virtually every commentary that you read that tries to look at this, what they say is this. Not virtually every commentary, but a lot, probably the the lion's share. They say verses 3 through 8 of the vision, and this is the part that deals with the ram, the two-horned ram, the unicorn goat, and then the four horns. They go, that's historical. That's Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, and then the the successors of Alexander the Great, his generals, which in Greek the term is, you'll see it a lot, diadochi. It just means successors. So they go, that part of the vision is historical. But then, between verse 8 and 9, it bleeds, it transitions in. So then when it's talking about the little horn, they go, yes, it's as Epiphanes, but he is a shadow of the Antichrist. And then some commentators, they kind of debate, and they go, well, it's primarily Antiochus, but there are foreshadowings of the Antichrist there. Others go, no, this is just talking about the Antichrist. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he was just a shadow of the Antichrist. So the point is, is the primary emphasis on the historical um, with it just partially being about the future, or is the primary emphasis on the future and the historical was just sort of a preliminary Just glimpse into the future. What is the main emphasis on, the historical or the future? And you can kind of, you know, they make arguments back and forth concerning that. Now what I am going to suggest to you and what we're going to look at is an alternative interpretation, which I call the consistent futurist interpretation. So rather than taking the vision, breaking it up, I have another chart which is to say that the entire vision, verses 3 through 12, whether we're talking about the ram, the goat, the four horns, or the little horn, all of it is an end-time prophecy. Now, that's not to say that the events of history with Medo-Persia, Alexander the Great, the Diadochi, that those things were not shadows. I think they clearly were. But that the ultimate emphasis of the prophecy from the beginning to the end All has end time application. Now, I'm not suggesting this as this is the truth, thus saith the Lord. I am chewing this over publicly, exploring it together. I'm not dogmatic, but I think it's absolutely interpretation that we need to be considering right now. One, because it makes sense exegetically. Two, because it makes sense in terms of what's unfolding in the earth in a profound way. So let's look at some of the reasons for this. Well, first is the verses that we already referenced, verses 10 through 12, because it specifically says of the little horn. So we're going to begin with the little horn, and then we're going to work backwards. It says that this horn grew up to the host of heaven, and it caused some of the host and the stars to fall to the earth. Now, this, these motifs, these symbols, the host of heaven, the stars, this is referring to angels. This is consistently when it says the stars... It's referring to angels throughout the scriptures. And it says he caused some of them to fall to the earth. And you go, I don't think Antiochus caused angels to fall down to the earth. And he trampled them down. And it even magnified himself to be equal to the commander of the host. Now, Antiochus did um, desecrate the temple. He sacrificed a pig in the temple. He he sort of that was a shadow of the ultimate abomination of desolation that the Antichrist will do in the future rebuilt temple, but it's really hard to say that that first verse of growing up to heaven and causing stars to fall, it's really hard to say that he fulfilled that in history as a man. And then we have further biblical evidence that it was never intended to be fully understood as applying to Antiochus, because in Revelation 12, we're going to jump forward to Revelation 12, verses 3 through 4, and then skipping forward to verse 9. It says, then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Now this is a symbolic picture of Satan having seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven crowns. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth. So there's this picture of something that unfolds arguably in the last days where Satan is cast down out of heaven and in the process he brings a third of the fallen angels with him. People go, well that's already happened. Satan's already been cast down. Technically, the accuser of our brethren, that's what Satan's called, still has access to the to accuse us before the throne. He still is accusing us day and night. He still has I don't fully understand the physics of the heavens and, you know, how this all works in the spiritual realm. But apparently his casting down is something that is actually yet to take place in the last days, as we will see in the next couple verses. So it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then in verses 10 and 12, we hear this cry, this shout that comes out of heaven, Now! Okay, now, now that Satan's been cast down, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. He who accuses them before our God day and night, for this reason, rejoice, O you heavens, and all you who dwell in them. So heaven is rejoicing. On the other hand, woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, Having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So whenever we see references to that final three and a half year period before the return of Jesus, it's always in the, the, the persecution of the Antichrist, it's always repeatedly referred to as a short time, one hour, just a little while. And this is multiple examples of this in the Old Testament and in the Book of Revelation. That his final little time of resistance—it's a short time—and so Satan will be cast down. Arguably, in that final seven-year period, in the middle of the final seven-year period before the return of Jesus. And so here you have biblical, um, you know, biblical precedent for the fact that this strange event referenced all the way back in Daniel eight, where someone magnifies himself to the host of heaven and causes these stars to fall, that it's actually an end-time event. Now, what happens is people go, well, wait a minute. Back in Daniel, it's a person, but here in Revelation, it's Satan. That seems to be contradictory, but it's not. Because when we understand the biblical mindset of what the Antichrist is, it's very simple. He is the dragon's, he is Satan's sock puppet. He is Satan's human um, puppet in the earth in the last days. He is the the human vessel through which Satan tries to accomplish his purposes and express his rage. He uses a human vessel. And there are a a couple of few different prophetic passages where it's talking about the Antichrist and it just bleeds seamlessly into talking about the devil as if if they're one and the same. And it's very unusual. Uh, Isaiah 14 is probably the clearest. It's this, it's this um, oracle against the king of Babylon. It begins referring to this person as the king of Babylon. And then it's talking about a human, and then it goes right into how you have fallen from heaven, O oh Lucifer, son of the morning. And it's now it's talking about, and it, as if it's just one person. It just bleeds from talking about the man, the Antichrist, right into Satan. Because they are, yes, they're two different individuals in a sense, but they function seamlessly together. And so they work together. They're part of the same program. And so it's just interesting that Revelation is using the very same language. It's actually referencing Daniel 8, and it's applying it to Satan in the last days. So that's the first reason to say this is something much bigger than just historical Antiochus Epiphanes. He didn't cause angels to fall from heaven. This is a much bigger issue that's taking place, thus giving credence to the idea that the little horn is indeed the Antichrist. Now, most commentators will agree with me on that. They're like, yeah, because they agree that verses 9 through 12 have eschatological end time fulfillment, but it's verses 3 through 8 where most disagree. They go, now that stuff, the ram, the goat, the four horns, that's all historical. Now we're going to look at some of the reasons why that very well may not be the case. So we're going to look at the interpretation. Now, whenever we get to passages like this, Daniel 8, various passages in Revelation, we're dealing with dragons with seven heads and ten horns. It's a lot of symbolism. It's a lot of apocalyptic language. Everyone has difficulty with it, and that's okay. But the good thing about the Bible, the good thing about these apocalyptic passages in the Bible, is that every time you have one of these crazy things that's that's hard to understand, and believe me, when I first got saved, like I was a complete pothead, and I just opened to the Re- Book of Revelation first. <laughs> like that's like the worst thing, um, because you start and you start like, what is this person on the white horse and the dragon? You know, you start trying to figure it out. And you'll come up, and this is, Christians have done it. They come up with all kinds of crazy out there interpretations. But here's the thing. An angel is always, just keep reading the prophecy, and an interpreting angel will come along and explain the symbolism. This means this. This, seven heads, is this is what it's referring to. And he tells the interpretation. They always do. It's amazing. Even Christians, expositors, they go, well, this means this. And I go, no, it doesn't. Because just six verses later, the angel tells us what it means. Like, what, what are we doing here? Like, we just pull this little verse out and expound upon it. And you go, but you got to read the full chapter, for goodness sakes. And so the Lord has not left us without an interpretation. And so the same is here in Daniel 8. We have an angel that shows up and gives the interpretation. And so we need to pay very close attention to what that angel had to say. So in verses 15 through 16, and I love this. This is so awesome. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Of course. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the canal, the Ulai Canal. And he called out and he says to this other guy, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Gabriel is in the house. This is Gabriel, the Gabriel that shows up and tells Mary, Mary, you found favor with God. This is the messenger angel. And Gabriel is personally about to give the prophet Daniel an explanation concerning what this vision means. I just so yearn to have an angelic encounter like that. I'm sure it would be terrifying. but So Gabriel comes near to me, Daniel says, where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened. I fell on my face, and he said to me, Son of man, understand, verse 17, that the vision pertains to the time of the end. It's a pretty clear statement. (laughs) Son of man, listen up. Before I say anything, I want you to understand something. The vision that you just saw, it's about the end times. It pertains to the time of the end. Verse 18 through 19, while he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. He touches me, makes me stand upright. He says, Behold! Okay, so one sentence, Daniel falls asleep, he picks him up. Second sentence, Behold! In case I wasn't clear enough a minute ago, (laughs) I'm going to tell you, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of indignation. That's a very specific phrase. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Three times in two sentences, Gabriel says the vision is about the end times. He doesn't say, Daniel, listen to me. I'm going to explain something to you. This prophetic stuff, it's complicated. Verses 3 through 8 pertain to history. But then between verses 8 through 9, it bleeds into the end times. Daniel, the vision concerns the time of the end. Now, that said, I'm not opposed to the idea that it could be historical bleeding into the end times. That's possible. That is not unlike the nature of biblical prophecy. Sometimes it does that. We can't go, well, he said that, therefore, every verse, because it still could apply to the end, because it gets there eventually. It's rooted in history and then rolls into the end times but we do need to consider the fact that that's not what Gabriel said. We do need to consider the possibility that the entirety of the prophecy may be indeed an end-time prophecy. So now he begins to explain it to him, Verses 20 through 21. We're going to skip the part about the 2,300 days, and that's a little complicated. It's kind of a whole side sermon. In verses 20 through 21, Gabriel says this, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. Now, everyone reads that, and they go, case closed. It's historical. And I go, well, why do you say that? And they go, well, because he names historical kingdoms. So that's what it's about. I go, well, wait a minute. Why don't we use that method of interpretation anywhere else? Like Let's say we're looking at Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, this is, this is like the classic couple chapters. It's the prophecy of Gog and Magog. This is one of the biggest Old Testament end-time prophecies. Every commentator looks at that. They look at the references to the day of the Lord. It's, it's clearly speaking of a culmination of redemptive history, the final destruction of the Lord's enemies. And they go, this is clearly an end-time prophecy. But who are the invaders? They're identified as Gog, who's the leader of this invasion. He's from Magog. And then it's Meshach, Tubal, Gomer to Gorma, Persia, Put, and um, one other that I left out. Persia, Put, Cush? Cush and Put. And these are all names that go all the way back to Genesis 10, the Table of Nations. These are like the most ancient names that you could pull out of the Bible, like just right after Noah. And we go, well, why isn't this a historical prophecy? And they go, because we know the context is the end times. And so you go, okay, so the context is the end times, so thus, the Bible is simply using the names that would have been common and understood to Ezekiel and his audience, but they are referring to regions that would have different names in the last days, but they're regions that would be understood by Ezekiel and his audience. We can... Understand what how Ezekiel and his immediate audience would have understood them, and we can look at a map and figure the parts of the world that Ezekiel is pointing to that will be involved in this last day's invasion, right? If you look at any other prophecy where the context is the end times, it always uses the names from that period because that, those were the names that the prophets knew. The prophets don't say, you know, Great Britain and, you know, Canada, it doesn't, you know, well, I mean, of course, the Bible never talks about Canada. Um, Texas, yeah, the, the, my people, Texans. Um, you know, it's amazing. It's like the Bible everywhere. It's my people, my people, Israel, 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 my people. But then you do have Isaiah 19, which calls Egypt my people. And can you imagine, like, because when you go to Egypt, there's signs everywhere, Egypt, my people. Like, you know, you know that if there was one verse in the Bible that said, Texas, my people, like, that would be boom, you know. It would be on the capital and the flags and everything. But we're not there. We're not in it. We're just those at ease in the coastlands. Well, like, we're not so much at ease right now. I mean, at least south of us. But the point is this. These were the regions and names that, Daniel would have understood. It doesn't mean that it must be historical. It just uses the names as they were known at that time. But Gabriel has already established the fact that the context is the end times. So, again, it's not conclusive, but... We know that the historical shadows, and we know the events that took place in history with Media and Persia sweeping across the Middle East, Alexander coming in response. But if it is an end-time prophecy, then what are we looking at? Well, we can figure Media and Persia, that's pointing to the region of basically Iran, Persia today. Media could arguably be maybe the Kurds. Um, They would correlate pretty much to the Medes. But then the word there says the kingdom of Greece. We go, what's that? If this is an end-time kingdom of Greece, what's that? Well, here's the interesting thing, is that the word there is not Greece. The word is Yavon, Yavon, or Javon, in the Hebrew. Now, there's a, there's a bias here in the translations, because even among, even among conservatives, there's this idea that this was written not in the 6th century, but more like in the 2nd century. But in the 6th century, because again, we're conservative Bible believers, we believe it was written by Daniel, in the 6th century, this term Javon, Yavon, there was no, that didn't refer to the kingdom of Greece. Back in the 6th century, Greece, you had Athens, then you had the Macedonian, it was kind of like a conglomeration of a bunch of different tribes. There was, no, there was no Greek empire yet. Instead, at the time of Daniel, Yavon referred to a very specific region. I've got a map. It's the area on the west coast of Asia Minor, which is today the nation, the, the Republic of Turkey. So that is the area of Javan. That is the area that would have been understood by Daniel's immediate audience when he said the king of Javan. Now later, after Alexander arose, a few hundred years after Daniel, and he came from, if you, if you just go a little bit west of Yavon, those are that's Greece. That's what we call Greece today. We hear Greece, and we just think the country of Greece. Zorba the Greek, you know, like, but biblically, um, Greece included the Greek islands and that part of Europe, but it also included the west, southwest coast of Turkey. That whole area was Macedonia. That's where Alexander came from. Once he conquered the whole Middle East, then that term, Yavon, came later to be used of all of Greece. But the problem is what we're doing is we're taking a a word that its meaning developed and we're imposing it backwards onto Daniel and, and saying Greece. There was no Greece at the time of Daniel. It didn't exist. The time of Daniel, Yavon was pointing to the west coast of Turkey. So if we are, go to the next map, if we're saying this is an end time prophecy, then just in the most raw sense... We're looking at a ram coming from the region of Elam, what today is the region loosely of Iran, and then the goat comes from the west. Does it mean it doesn't include Europe? We're not quite sure, but it's basically pointing to the region of Turkey today. That's in, in, in just, again, the most raw sense, that's what it's referring to. And so you look at that and you go, okay, if this interpretation is something to be considered... Is this a possibility? Is this something that we could see in our day? Is this something that could possibly be unfolding in our day or in our near future? And as I would um, suggest and as we'll look at, I think there's abundant on-the-ground present-tense realities to say that this makes so much sense right now. So much sense. So let's begin by laying out the implications. What would it mean if this consistent futurist interpretation is true? Next slide. The first step would be an Iranian invasion of the Middle East. That's the two-horned ram butting out from the area of Persia. It says specifically westward, northward, and southward. butting out, so the Iranian invasion of the Middle East. Step two is what seems to be a Turkish military response. He comes all across the earth without touching the ground. The unicorn goat comes and defeats Iran, crushes the the goat. Step three, the leader of Turkey, which is the prominent horn, sort of the last day's Alexander, if you will, he dies. That horn is broken off. In the same way that Alexander died at the height of his power, that prominent horn is broken off. And then... Whatever this sort of new Turkey is, this new empire or region, it breaks up into four. It breaks up into four, and then out of one of the four comes the Antichrist. So if the consistent interpretation is true, this is what we would be looking at. Now let's continue to look at some of the reasons why this very well may be the case. Now this is, this is, this is also interesting. We're going to jump back to verses 20 and 21. So go to the next slide. We've already looked at this, but it says, so now this is Gabriel giving the interpretation. He says, the ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So again, that would most likely be Iran, possibly with the Kurds. Which that's, that's that's a tricky one. We won't get into that much right now. And then the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Yavon, which would seem to be Turkey. But then it says this, the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The first king of what? Of Yavon. Now, I looked at this as I've been exploring this interpretation for a few years, and I went, how, okay, let's say it's imminent, then maybe the current president of Turkey, his name is Recep Tayyip Erdogan, maybe there's a chance that he could actually be this prophetic character, the first king of Yavan. Maybe he could be that conspicuous horn. Maybe it's someone that comes after him, I don't know, but is it possible? But then I said, but how could you call the current president of Turkey the first king? That didn't make any sense. Until a year ago, um, when all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's this, this news just breaks out that there's jets flying over Istanbul. How many people have ever been to Istanbul? It's been a handful. And, I mean, this is, like, shocking. You know, if you're tracking with things unfolding in Turkey, and there's an effort to carry out a coup, a military coup, and you're going, oh, my gosh, and Erdogan, the president, who's been emerging as a dictator... Pretty strongly trying to take over and replace this whole government system that was established by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Um, the this is shocking, and he's on he's on like FaceTime or something. He's on he's in some hotel somewhere, and he's talking to his people via FaceTime, and he's saying, "You people, get out in the streets. You resist this military effort. We're going to crush that." And you're going, "Oh my gosh, they might actually kick this guy out. Like they might be successful in the coup." But by the morning. The coup had been completely crushed. Now most, a lot of Turks believe that the whole thing was staged by Erdogan himself. Since this failed coup, since he overcame this effort by a little faction within the military to kick him out, he has purged the nation of well over 100,000 of his political opponents, of his political enemies. This is... In so many ways, what's unfolded over the past year in Turkey is almost identical, although in a much longer sense, to what was called the Night of Long Knives with Adolf Hitler as he was rising to power on the backs of this group, the German SA. They were known as the Brown Shirts, and he turned on them, in over a couple-night period, he executed and massacred the brown shirts. Even though he rode to power on their backs, he consolidated his own power. There was a little bit of a, of a power tension there, and he consolidated his absolute, complete dictatorship over Turkey. That is exactly what has happened in... Uh, I'm sorry, over Germany. That's exactly what's happened in Turkey over the past year. And we have right now in front of us arguably the most significant dangerous dictator, the most outspoken, aggressive, brazen, nationalist dictator that we've had emerge in the earth in a long time. And Turkey has the largest army in the whole Middle East, by the way. And it's a, member of, it's a member of NATO, just to put that in context. So here's a picture of Erdogan, just if you're not familiar. His name is spelled with a G, so it's like pronounced Erdogan, but it's pronounced Erdogan. So if you have a hard time remembering that, just think, Star Wars, Erdogan Ben Kenobi. It sounds like Obi-Wan. It, sound, it rhymes with Obi-Wan Ben Kenobi. Um, but he is um, he's primarily a nationalist, a Turkish nationalist, who uses Islamism uh, to further his own agenda. We've seen this down through history now. In 2013... As the Arab Spring was sweeping across the, oh, it's already 1117. You know what, I'm probably, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go long on this. The next one will be a little shorter anyway, because I think it would have been. So um, So hold in your pee, people. We're going to keep going. <laughs> We're almost done. 2013, when um, the Arab Spring was sweeping throughout, it started in 2011. And then finally reached Turkey. And everyone was like, wow, the Arab Spring finally reached Turkey. And there was all these protests and so forth. Well, um, we actually had pre-planned to go there. We were working on a documentary. We ended up in Gezi Park, Taksim Square, which is sort of this historical square right in the middle of Istanbul. The night that the government purged 10,000 protesters out of the square, we got caught up in all of it. It was absolute chaos. We got tear gassed. And um, it was one of the greatest men's night out of my life. <laughs> the next day, after having been tear gassed by the dictator, we were walking around Istanbul, and there was all these buses everywhere. And we're going, what's going on all these buses? are just..." And we're going, something big is going on. And I just said to my one of my buddies, I go, let's get on. There's four of us. And we're like, really? Let's just see where they're going. Because it was free. So we go, let's do it. We hopped on the bus. We had our camera equipment and just lower, lower key camera equipment. And here's the scary thing, too. I'll just I'll throw this out. So we're at the protests were a mixture of all kinds of um, more secular and liberals. But a lot of them had those Guy Fawkes masks that the Occupy Wall Street guys would wear. You know, it's like this kind of smiling white face. They would put those on. You, you know the mask, right? Oh, yeah. Well, they had those because that's become like the international. Well, I bought a couple because it was like a souvenir. And even as a joke, I put one on and I stood up on this pile of rubble and did one of these and my friend tweeted and he said, he said um, Joel Richardson is protesting Obamacare in Istanbul, you know, and I'm going, and he was just, and people are like, what an idiot! And he's like, it's a joke. Um, but so we had our bags with our masks in it and we get on the bus, and all of a sudden we realize we're going to a pro-government Erdogan rally. <laughs> the guy that had gassed us the night before had pre-planned this and had a massive rally in this area of Istanbul called Zeytinburnu, which is down by the, the water, and it, it's, there's enough room there for maybe a million people. I mean, it, is, it was the biggest gathering I've ever seen in my life, as far as I could see where people gathered and it was nationalism on a level that very few people can even begin to relate to. Like, you look at the most patriotic American rally you can imagine, and this was that times 10. Everything in me just went, I feel like I'm in Nazi Germany. Like, I felt like it was, I was like, this is unbelievable. And so we waited out for about three hours, and and it was, you know, I won't get into the whole story there, but I mean, you know, we're like Americans, and... Um, and and you kept hearing like all of the pre speeches, and they were like celebrating their victory of having cleansed the square of all these rabble rousers, chapul jewels. They, they call them like the, the hoodlums, the vandals, and um, and then they kept going, oh, and they were upset because saying CNN had given them a bad, um, had been speaking badly about the government. So you you I don't speak Turkish, so you know you you would hear things, and they would be like, oh, CNN, and the whole place, like a million people would go, boo, you know, and then people would come up to us and go, where you from, CNN? (laughs) We're going, no, CNN. Um, And whenever you're in like an incredibly surrounded by a million potentially hostile people, you just turn on the dumb American smile. because you can't attack somebody if they're smiling, <laughs> and I would just use like the little cherry, I would just go, chocuzel, which means like, very beautiful, you know, and they just be like, and they just walk away, <clears throat> so we, we're standing out there for three hours in the hot sun, and then the dictator finally comes out, and, and the big mega screens are just like, they're, you know, going on forever, And and they make this big production. You can see his car driving down the street, the entourage, and he arrives. He walks up on stage, and the whole place is chanting "Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Recep Tayyip Erdogan." And he gets up on stage, and he takes off his jacket, and go to the next slide. He's wearing my shirt. (laughs) I mean, like, how do you you can't plan that? That was the day. The only thing is, I had short sleeves, so I had to share that. I was like, because dictators, they're bad people, but they got great sense of fashion. Either that, or they really don't, and neither do I. So, go to the next slide. It says geographic cycles. So now here's the thing, I'll just throw this out. The book of Daniel talks about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, or the prince of Yavon, and they're in conflict. These are the principalities, these demonic principalities that are at work over these regions of the earth. And when you go all the way back 3,000, 4,000 years ago, well, I guess this is, yeah, um, yeah about 3,600 years ago. I mean, I'm sorry, 2,600 years ago. You have this issue of Medo-Persia, and Alexander's Macedonian Greek Empire. And they were clashing. And they essentially clashed sort of over that area that is today Syria and Iraq, and they were banging heads, these two empires. One overcame one, then the other one came back. You step forward a little bit in history, you had the Roman Empire was clashing with the Persians that were known as the Parthian Empire. A little bit forward, it was the Byzantines, which is the later... Version of the Roman Empire clashing with the Sassanids. A little bit further, you have the Ottomans clashing with the Safavids. Today, you have Turkey that is at odds with Iran. This, this pattern is 2,500 years old. And there are some reasons in the natural for this, some of them have to do with just geography effects you know, mountain ranges and natural resources. And there's reasons why certain parts of the world repeatedly clash throughout history, despite whatever governments are there. But there's also this issue of the principalities. And that's a part that I don't quite understand. But The Bible makes it clear that there's this thing operating. It would be very unusual if Turkey and Iran didn't clash in these last days. That, those parts of the world have been clashing for Like I said, 2,500 years repeatedly. Now, here's another major reason to see a problem with the historical interpretation. It says this in verse 22. The broken horn on the goat and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms. This is Gabriel giving the interpretation, which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So, most people say this is the Diadochi, the four generals of Alexander. Here's the problem with that. First of all, let me just read a quote from John Walvard. John Walverd was the um, dean at Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the great sort of end-time teachers um, of last generation. And in his commentary on Daniel, he says this. Notice, practically all commentators recognize the four horns, so he's articulating this perspective that it's dealing with history. He says, practically all commentators recognize that the four horns are symbolic of four kingdoms, the Diadochi, the successors of Alexander the Great, and he lists them. Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Okay, so he lists Lysimachus, Cassander, Seleucus so and Ptolemy, and he goes. Practically all commentators recognize that those were the guys that took over Alexander's kingdom. Here's the problem: is Walvert is simply wrong. Um, when you go back to the earliest commentaries that we have, go to the next slide. The earliest commentaries that exist in the churches. Um, Possession on the book of Daniel. The earliest one we have was written by Hippolytus in 305. He lists the four this way. Seleucus, Demetrius, Ptolemy, and Philip. So he only agrees with two of the four that Walford lists. Two others he has that are totally different. Fifty years later, Ephraim the Syrian that's the next commentary that we have on Daniel. He agrees with Hippolytus' list. In the same year, the church historian Eusebius, he lists two of, the, of those. He lists Seleucus and Ptolemy, but then he has Antigonus and Philip. So he changes out Antigonus for Demetrius. <laughs> this is getting confusing. Um, 52 years later, Jerome the Latin uh, church father, he agrees with Eusebius. 23 years later, Theodoret of Cyrus, he wrote a commentary on Daniel. He lists Seleucus, Antigonus, Ptolemy, and Antipater. So now he has a new guy that he throws in there, Antipater. And now 2017, the consensus among most end-time books, most commentaries... Is back to Walverd's Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander. They all agree on Seleucus and Ptolemy, but none for the first 400 years after Jesus, no one included Lysimachus or Cassander. Why is there so much disagreement? And the answer is because when you study the events of history as they unfolded with Alexander, It was not neat and clean or easy whatsoever. It was not like Alexander died and four came up in his place. Quite to the contrary, it's a very different story, and we're going to review it very briefly. First of all, after Alexander died, go to the next map, um, they divided it up between Alexander's older brother, Philip, that historians say may have been partially retarded or something was wrong with him, and then also he was going to co-rule with... um, Alexander's unborn son. If it was a son, his wife, um, Roxana was pregnant. If it was a son, then Philip and the unborn son would co-rule together. Until that time, there were some sort of regents, and they divided up the empire among twenty-three, roughly 23 different divisions. Not four, 23. After a few years, they started fighting, and you had what were called the Wars of the Diadochi, So here's sort of a timeline. Alexander dies. Two years later, some of these different um, quadrants, satrapies, they're called provinces, they start fighting. Five years later, you have the Second War of the Diadochi. Four years later, the Third War. By 301, we're now 21 years after Alexander died, you had the Fourth War of the Diadochi called the Battle of Ipsus. Throughout this period, there were not four, there were five. Five major generals that had sort of consolidated power. Go to the next map. And here, even though it's in another language, this is probably the best map that i found. And of course, they're always moving and changing these, these provinces because they were always fighting. But you have Ptolemy. This is Ptolemyos. Ptolemy in the south. That's Egypt. Then you had Seleucus over here, which is sort of Iraq extending all the way through Iran. That's the east. Then you had Antigonus, and he controlled what is today Turkey. And then up there in Macedonia, you have Cassander, so it's Cassandros, and Lysimachus, so Lysimachus and Cassander. But virtually every commentary that you read today leaves out Antigonus. And this guy was the biggest and the baddest and the best out of any of them for 21 years after Alexander died. 21 years. How many people saw the John Wayne or the Jeremy Bridges remix of True Grit? (laughs) He's an overweight, older guy with blind in one eye, with a patch, and yet he's just like a sharpshooter, right? Even in the dust, just And he's like, I'm old and fat. But he was still bad to the bone, right? That was Antigonus. Antigonus was way older then Seleucus, Ptolemy, Cassander, and Lysimachus. He ran circles around them militarily. He was blind in one eye. His name was, they called him in Greek, Antigonus Monophthalmus, the Cyclops. He had one eye. He was really overweight, and he was way older than the other guys. And strategically, he ran circles around them. He finally died at the Battle of Ipsus. He was in his 80s, and he got a spear in him. He slipped up, you know, even the best eventually. Sometimes it catches up with us, and he died. And so this is when you go, oh, okay, well, there it is, the four. Nope, because as soon as Antigonus died, his son Philip took over, no, I'm sorry, his son Demetrius took over an area. There were still five. There was no time for like 30 years after Alexander died that you could ever say there were four this is a huge problem for the historical interpretation. How many of you believe that when biblical prophecy is fulfilled, it's fulfilled pretty precisely? Like the Lord doesn't go, four, or five, eh, who cares? <laughs> and I was like, I read four books on this. On, I mean, I tore through the history of this, and I'm like, every Christian commentary that I read says, clearly the four generals came up, and they agree with, with Walvard, Lysimachus, Cassander, Demetrius, and, and uh, I mean, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And I go... That's not how the history unfolded at all. There was five. And Antigonus came the closest to taking over all of them. Like, he came the closest to being the new Alexander. Here's the point. I believe prophecy is fulfilled precisely. If that's the case, I think there's a solid chance that this is yet future. Now, it makes sense. Oh, by the way, you know, I was talking about Erdogan. How would it work that he could be called the first king? Because he has taken the the, the Republic of Turkey... that that was founded in 1923 under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. That doesn't exist anymore. There is a new, undisputed king of Turkey, if you will. I mean, it's like, it really makes sense as a possibility. This guy has established himself as the undisputed dictator. So if, and again, this is a big if, if he is the prominent horn Then after these events happen, the Iranian invasion, the Turkish response, he dies. This new Turkey, which is going to probably include much of the Middle East, sort of a revived Ottoman Empire, immediately it breaks up into four. Out of one of these four comes the Antichrist. It really puts things in context in terms of how close we actually could be. Now let's skip forward two slides to where it says Iran dominates in Iraq after the U.S. handed the country over. This was an article just... A month ago July 15th this is the New York Times since all of the chaos that has unfolded with Isis I mean it goes all the way back to Bush and the invasion of Iraq and George W and everything and then what's unfolded with Isis sweeping out of Syria Iran has been the clearest winner of all now again Iran let's do this skip forward to the very last slide which is a map I'm gonna do this real quick What I've done is I've put the countries that are, the areas in the regions that are Shia majority. Shia are the minority sect of Muslims, the 15%. I've made those green. All of the areas that are Sunni majority, that's the majority sect of Islam, 85%, I've made them red. I made Israel and some of the more Christian nations blue. I highlighted the Kurdish areas in yellow. The Kurds are kind of caught in the middle. Now, ISIS, the map's a little old because I've got ISIS, ISIS is on its way out, but that part of those parts of Syria and Iraq remain to be Sunni majority. However, Iran has used ISIS. And, and by the way, notice that Iraq in the south is green. Because the the, the Shia in the south, which is Baghdad South, that's Shia majority. Thus, they naturally are sort of beholden to Iran, because Iran is the big Shia strongman. And so when we knocked out Saddam Hussein out of Iraq, we basically gave the government Iraq over to Iran. That's basically what we did. Iran in 1979 with Ayatollah Khomeini is trying to establish its Shia dominance throughout the whole Middle East, and they've been working diligently to do that. We just gave them one of their greatest victories. Well, today Iran controls Iran. They control Tehran, which is the capital of Iran. They control Baghdad. They control Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, because they have Hezbollah over there. And they have Bashar Assad, the president of Syria, under their control as his proxy. Today Iran, this is really new, controls three foreign capitals, Baghdad, Beirut, and Damascus, not to mention its own. Because of ISIS, Iran has sent in its own military into Iraq and Syria. This is unprecedented. Over the past two years, two, three years, they've sent in tens of thousands of their elite fighters into Syria right on the border of Israel. Iran now, right through the heart of ISIS, has a clear road. They can literally drive from Iran straight over to the Mediterranean. This is unprecedented. Iran's power throughout that region has absolutely run away. Go back just to that New York Times headline. Um, We're working in northern Iraq, where since the fall of Mosul, we've been working with the Kurdish military to bring in aid and to provide ambulances and to do different things. If you haven't seen the movie, you can go online, you can watch it for free. I've got the movie back there called Better Friends Than Mountains. Better Friends Than Mountains, part two tells the story of um, what FAI has been doing, one of my key strategic ministry partners in northern Iraq. Um, So we were working with the Peshmerga, which is the Kurdish military. And then we started working with the Iraqi military. Again, they would assist us to go in and bring aid to anybody, the Sunnis, the Shia, the Kurds, the Yazidis, the Christians, and we're bringing in aid to anybody. The Lord causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, Right. And then this new group arose. They're called the Hasht al Shabi. They call them Shia militias. This is basically Iranian controlled militia all throughout northern Iraq. Iran is everywhere in northern Iraq right now. They're all over the place. And they're doing what all of these groups always do, what Hamas does they're doing aid. They're winning the hearts of the people, and all these groups are actually defecting and joining Hashdal Shabi, and you effectively have already an Iranian invasion of the whole Middle East. Now, it's not quite that aggressive butting out that Daniel 8 seems to be pointing to, but it's already unfolding right now. The GOAT is butting out, and I can guarantee you that Turkey is not happy about it, because from Turkey's perspective, that all belonged to them under the Ottoman Empire. And so this merging conflict between Iran and Turkey is unfolding right now, right in front of us, pretty much exactly as Daniel 8 seems to be suggesting. Go to the next slide. There's another one. The winner in Syria is Iran. What's today? What's the date today? Yeah, this is from today. This was in the Jerusalem Post today. Um, when you go up onto the northern border of Israel on the Golan Heights, in both Lebanon and in Syria, there's these banners. Uh, not just the Lebanese flags. There's actually Iranian flags. You can in Israel. You can look up and see them. And there's a poster of Ayatollah Khomeini, and uh, Khamenei, and it says, "We are coming for you." Iran is right on Israel's northern border. So I'm going to leave it there. I've gone very, very long, but All that to say is, this is something. I'm not saying it dogmatically. This is the right interpretation. I'm saying we watch. I've given you the steps. The Iranian invasion. The Turkish response. If these things begin to follow through, if you see the prominent horn broken off, then I think at that point you go, you hit the button. This is that, which the prophet spoke of. Why do I say, when do you hit the button? Because we have to be cautious Biblical prophecy. Every every prophecy teacher wants to be the guru that gets it right. You know that that I'm the one that predicted this, and I see this all the time. I call it the prophet syndrome. You go to you know you meet some of these guys. Some of them are great. Other ones you meet, and they're just so territorial. They want to be the one that discovered this or discovered that or had the right thing. This is not what this is about. This is a pastoral matter of the utmost importance. The issue. I talked about it last night of being able to point to the world and explain to the world that this book has accurate biblical prophecy that you could not make up 2,000 years ago that describes the contours of the present geopolitical landscape in precise ways. And this ability of us to expound upon prophetic material and explain to peoples of the earth that this, this that's unfolding in the earth right now is exactly what the prophets declared. We could call it apocalyptic evangelism. This is going to be one of the greatest tools at our disposal for people of understanding in the days ahead. As the end time events are unfolding, this is what we will be able to use if we use it wisely and cautiously. And what that means is we don't jump out ahead today and say, this is that, ah! We watch and we wait. But there's a certain point where we do declare, this is that which the prophet Daniel... Or it unfolds in a different way and we go, I guess it." that historical interpretation is more accurate. You know, we, we have to be cautious. We have to be humble. But it's okay as a family to come together and chew over these things and discuss them and look at them together. But the time is coming when that final generation will be able to... To open the word of God and responsibly talk to unbelievers and say, These things which the prophet spoke about, this is what you're seeing unfold in the earth. Repent therefore, because it has been appointed to a man to judge the living and the dead. Amen. 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 So, Father, we thank you for these things. We ask that you would seal these things in our heart. We ask in our hearts, we ask that you would give us wisdom. We ask that you would open our eyes to peer into your word with trembling and fear, and we ask that you would equip your people to have understanding, to be people of understanding in these last days. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. We want to use every tool that you've given us. We want to use it responsibly. We ask that you would help us to do that. We want to win many into your kingdom. We want to snatch as many out of the fire as possible. We want to see as many at the feast on that day. We want to be part of it. Lord, use us. We commit these things to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.